Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And hello, everybody. This is the second of our series, The Birth of Paganism. And tonight we're going to be talking to one of the most interesting people that I know, Reverend Don Lewis, who's in charge of the Corellian tradition, a global phenomena that emerged in the late 20th century and the early 21st century kind of create a Wiccan tradition that is not only diverse, expansive, but it is as much as it is global. It has members from all over the world, including the Philippines, North America, South America, parts of Africa, South Africa, especially along and Europe. It is on all seven continents, yes, including Antarctica. And we're going to talk about the origins of this. How it, before it became that phenomenon, we're going to talk about its origins. And with us is Reverend Don Lewis. Hello. And welcome. Um, so let us jump right into it. Uh, the Corellian tradition, for those who don't know, give us a short one or two minutes. Uh, the Corellian tradition began as a familial tradition of witchcraft, um, developed through the 20th century, mm-hmm. had its origins in the late 19th century, what meta tag we want to put on it at that point is perhaps debatable, but it, it's been the same thing all along. Um, it has a very strong focus on the ancestors, a very strong focus on uh, the development of psychic and magical abilities, and a very strong focus on understanding the nature of the universe, the, the, of um, the nature of incarnation and reincarnation and um, what Lady Bitterwind would have called the witchness of the why. Terrific. So why don't we go ahead and talk about that? Why don't you go ahead and can you give us a little bit of the history uh, prior to 1970, the 70s? When yes. were why don't you give us a little bit of the history before 1970? Well, Caroline High Corral founded the family, founded the tradition Um, Exactly what caused her to do this um, could be a number of things. I don't know that anyone really knows why that particular time. Um, But a number of things had happened prior to that time that might, might have moved her toward doing that. I was told by my mother and, and a couple of other older members of the family, my cousin Gloria, my cousin Crystal, uh, that Caroline founded the family out of her own heritage, that she um, was pulling on things that she was taught growing up, as well as things that she learned in her life. And she always continued expanding her knowledge. Um, she herself was very big on psychic reading, on herbalism, uh, on various types of magic. Uh, she had, which I assume we'll come back to, a connection with Aradian witchcraft. Um, I understand she had a background in Scottish witchcraft. Uh, whatever that may have been at that time, 
And she had a Native American background as well. And what she did, as I understand, is she combined all of these things together in a way of understanding the universe, uh, which has, I think, at least, at least from my own point of view, as one of its most unique features, the ability to look at things differently from different angles in order to understand them better, uh, rather than taking a, um, a hidebound opinion of the nature of existence, um, that a, a given thing can be many different things depending on how you interact with it. Um, and I think that's, I think that is one of the things that is maybe not unique to Corellianism, but is, but is stronger for us than for some others. And so we, we see that that happened. So let's talk about, um, cause we talked to Oberon Zell last week. We were going to be talking mm-hmm. to more people. And the 60s seemed to be really where the hotbed of the community as we know it, uh, of the pagan community as we know it has emerged. At least that's mm-hmm. what it appears. But yours, uh, a little bit later, you were already in existence. You were a family tradition. Mm-hmm. And, but in the 1970s, can you talk to us about that environment? You were a small boy. How were you raised? I mean, how was it that there was being practiced? Well, I, um, I've talked about this previously on a couple of occasions, but I think that I want to emphasize that I was raised with the tradition, uh, but, you know, the deeper, the deeper ideas came when I was older. But what, things I remember from childhood, I remember definitely a strong uh, emphasis on the ancestors, a lot, a lot of... Um, Actually, a lot of emphasis on the things we've talked about. Some of the earliest things I remember were teachings about the nature of incarnation. My grandmother had a point of view that if you did not like the way your life had been led, you could relead it after it ended, uh, which is still part of Corellian thought, the idea of uh, probabilities and multiple versions of lifetimes. And I remember that very, very early in life. I remember being thought about reincarnation very early in life. Um, and the, the omnipresence of ancestral veneration in the family um, were the things that I was mostly raised with. Uh, things that I did not personally experience as a child, we were, we were not particularly strong on seasonal rituals that are such an important part of modern Wicca. They weren't completely absent, but they weren't, weren't a big thing um, in the same way they would be today. It was much more... I guess I'd say the philosophical end of things. Uh, but the other thing, the other thing when I was a child is that we, we were moving into a state of decline at that time. There weren't very many of us. Um, and toward the, toward the early 70s, it actually looked like, um, as I understand it, it looked like, looked like we were not going to survive. And what happened at that time my cousin Gloria had, had left the area long before, but she came back at that time, and she and my mother decided this was not an acceptable state of affairs, that they had to, had, had to revitalize the tradition, and they set about working on that, uh, bringing, bringing um, 
the younger generation into it more than um, my mother had only me as a child. Gloria had three daughters and a son. And the hope was that this would re-expand the family tradition. And so they changed some of the rules. And in doing that, I would say that, that they, they kind of started the expansion of the tradition, although uh, it was really more Crystal who did that. So by 74, there was actually an open public temple working. Um, the dancers of Shakti that uh, was, was doing um, public ritual in the sense of being not only for the family. And this, um, I became involved with that right about that time, really. And, um, or shortly so, after. So 1974, the Temple of Shakti has gone public. This is a very private family tradition. And, uh, and it didn't share a lot of what of uh, the uh, seasonal rituals in the same way, but it, so one of the things it did have was the lustration. That it was the family ritual of the lustration. Yes. Could you talk about that for a minute? How that came um, out from the past, and that was still being practiced. Well, as I as I was saying, ancestor veneration was very very important, and the lustration is basically a ceremony of connection to the ancestors uh, and invoking their blessing on the tradition. And uh, the thing that makes it a lustration is the use of blessed water um, to convey the ancestral blessing. Mm -hmm. And yes, this is one of the, one of the ancestors, one of the ancestor ceremonies that as far as I know, um, go back all the way through the tradition, certainly before me. Um, it was not particularly seasonal in character. Uh, today we have lustrations twice a year. Uh, ancestrally, they were whenever they were needed. And the idea was to, to invoke the power of the ancestors to bless and protect the tradition and its members. And this was done energetically. Energetics were a very big thing in traditional Corellian practice. They were a big thing when I was growing up. Um, energetic healing, energetic work uh, in general. We were always very big on visualization also. That sort of thing was very big for us in the kind of magic that we did. Um, gen um, in 19, so in 1974, mm -hmm. uh, the Temple of Shakti began you started doing public rituals. When was your, uh, when were you in becoming involved in paganism? Where is that movement in relation to the Corellian tradition? Well, there had always, always been um, a, cer a certain connection to the idea of the movement, particularly through Leland. And, um, mm -hmm. But in terms of the modern movement, a lot of that starts with Lady Bitterwind. Certainly, I, I think the family were following the, the various publications that were happening at that time. Uh, I remember being given my first books on what we would today call the Wiccan community, probably about 1973. Uh, the very first one came actually from my father, um, the second one from Lady Crystal. But uh, 
Lady Bitterwind, who entered through the dancers of Shakti, was very much connected to the modern pagan community, particularly um, through the science fiction um, community, which had a lot of connections to the pagan community, and also through what would become Circle Sanctuary. And one of the big influences through the 70s was the development of Circle Sanctuary and their understanding um, of religious witchcraft. Now, you know, I have to say that at this time, in the 60s and 70s, what people in the United States meant by religious witchcraft uh, was a pretty broad margin of things. Um, the term Wicca was not yet widely used, although it was present. People usually used the word witchcraft. And they certainly did not mean just one line of thought. Um, at least as I understood it, it was a very, very diverse group of systems. Um, as things in the 70s developed, the term Wicca began to become more popular, and it was understood as a synonym for religious witchcraft at that time. Um, the emergence of Circle Sanctuary, uh, Circle News, was, was a very big um, influence on us and the way that, that they saw the community was an influence on us. Uh, we were also influenced to some extent by the Survivor newsletter, uh, which came from a different background and only emphasized the, the diversity of meaning. So I was taught from the very beginning that there were many different things under this heading. And I was taught that um, one group really could not properly criticize another because we were all doing our own our own customs. There was not a, a one overarching way. That's a point of view that many people changed later. But at that time, uh, it was a much wider understanding. Uh, as the pagan media became a bigger thing, we, we were... I would say we were very heavily influenced by media. Uh, again, we, we had um, followed most of the books that were published during this period. Um, and Circle Sanctuary, Circle News, uh, I mentioned The Survivor, they were, they were fairly big influences on, on aspects of our way of thinking at that time. As we moved into the 80s, that then the pagan press became even more important to us because we ourselves moved into it. Um, and I'm not quite sure what to say for that, except that, as I say, the understanding of the community at that time was that it was coming down from heterogeneous origins, uh, mm -hmm. or at least through heterogeneous paths. Um, there was certainly an attitude in, in many areas that it had once been a single organized movement, uh, but not that it had remained so. That's and uh, Sybil Leek was a person who had a certain amount of influence on us also. And she, she said and she felt that the reason the different branches of religious witchcraft were so different uh, is that um, as paganism, and I don't remember now if she was using that term or not, but as the old religion was coming under persecution, 
uh, different surviving branches decided to focus on different aspects and thus became very different in what they were doing. And that's, that, that was not an uncommon way of thinking about it in the late 70s. Uh, I heard the, the interview with Oberon Zell, and he mentioned Civil League and the idea that um, many people had at that time that witchcraft came down in particular bloodlines and was almost like a subset of humanity. And that was, in fact, a, a, a thing you encountered quite a lot at that time. Uh, the, the bloodline... Uh, I think was more important for a lot of people. My family, because it had come to that point that we had a relatively few number of heirs, uh, was very big on the idea of expanding beyond bloodline. Because if we had stuck with bloodline, we, we were um, there was just going to be a couple of us. But um, a lot of people at that time were very focused on the idea of bloodline. And, you know, the, the question... Does this flow through bloodline? You know, parts of it, maybe they do. But it obviously does not only go that way because there are many a people, many people who don't have it in their background but learn it perfectly well. So that's a great place. So inside the Corellian literature, it's often talked about 1979 when you finally embraced Wicca, mm-hmm. paganism. Can you describe... When Lady Crystal finally came forward in 1979, um, that really kind of changed the tradition from just being a familiar tradition to a much more modern pagan, similar to other pagan movements. You talked about that, 1979. That was that was a very momentous time. It was February. It was very cold, uh, as it always is here in central Illinois. Um it um, was the turning over of the leadership of the tradition from my mother to my cousin Crystal and to myself as first priest. And officially, Crystal declared that we were now a public tradition, that we were part of the Wicca movement, um, that we were, for one of a better way to put it, a modern tradition. And Crystal had... And I had. I, I was quite um, quite on board with things, but I, I was also quite young. But she had a very expansive view at that time of where we needed to go. That was very different from where we had been. Um, definitely no longer had the attitude of being a familial tradition in the same way. Although we continued to... Um, it took a while to, to really transfer the mindset because, you know, when you've always been one thing, uh, becoming something new can take a little while. But we, we um, had in many ways already started with the Temple of Shakti, uh, bringing in other people. And um, so through the 80s, we, we were quite active after, after that change in beginning to work on a wider public forum. And so the, let's, uh, go ahead. let's go ahead and talk ahead. about that. You're talking about being more in the public forum. Uh, 
Levita, but, you know, one of the mother- things I have to say, mm-hmm. I started being publicly Wiccan 1976, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. The Crystal around the same time, even even before the 1979 meeting. And I don't, I don't, I never encountered a bad reaction uh, until many years later. Um, it was very interesting looking back that that was not the case. Uh, maybe it's how we explain things. I don't know. Um, I will say I, did, I was not running around um, with a big sign on my chest exactly, but I was open with people that, that I knew and talked to. And um, one of the weird things, and it only seems weird now that I've spoken to other people, but, you know, you could, you could get books on Wicca and witchcraft here in Danville with no problem. There was a tobacconist shop on Vermilion Street that regularly had them. There were other places in town that occasionally had them. We were not the only people practicing religious witchcraft present in Danville. Um, over the years, I met, I met a number of others who did not come into it through us. They were already here. And you, know, you would think to hear how a lot of people talk that that should not have been the case in central Illinois, but it was. Um, it's kind of similar to what we encountered when we, when we later went to Hoopston, where we're, there were already other groups there before we ever came. Just most people didn't know about them. And I cannot say there was a large public community here in Danville in the 70s. We were probably the most public ones. Um, But there certainly were other people. And that's important to know. So in talking about moving to be more public, Why don't you explain your mother's unique uh, positioning of moving into media? Um, If I understand right, according to to the previous ones, she bought a copy machine, and you guys began. And you began with the five mystic secrets, and then the wheel of Hecate. Can you speak to that early, and also being a member of the Pagan Press Alliance? Yes, I can. Why don't you go ahead and speak about that influence? That was like mid-80s, if I'm understanding correct. Early to mid-80s, yeah. And one of the things that was happening then, and I don't know if people remember it now, is there was a movement called the New Right, uh, which was becoming more and more prominent and seemed very aggressive. Um, And my mother was very concerned about this. And in the early 80s, she wrote a book called The Five Mystic Secrets, which expelled Corellian philosophy as she understood it. Um, And also was meant to be an answer to a lot of the conservative Christian things you were seeing at that time. Because there there was quite a, quite a, um, a campaign going on at that time on the part of conservative Christians. You were seeing a lot of the old chick tracks showing up all over the place. And although the five mystic secrets is not written in the same manner as a chick track, it was originally meant as an answer to them. And she felt that she felt as I've always felt that we had to speak our own truth. If we thought anyone was ever going to hear it, 
uh, that if we did not say anything, nobody would ever know. So she put her understanding of the nature of the universe, the nature of the soul, of incarnation, um, the ideas of um, the nature of deity, and the importance of knowledge and freedom into that book. Um, I illustrated it. And uh, we started publishing it. I was already out a little bit into the pagan press at that time. I, I started out in the science fiction press. Um, and I started out because of Lady Bitterwind, who was a well-known illustrator and writer in science fiction fandom. So I found my, my first uh, media audience in science fiction fandom. Uh, but through that, I started to find connections into the pagan press and um, started working heavily with them. And that's when we, we saw that there was a way to make this book and distribute it. So again, my mother wrote it. She did um, rent a copy machine. She didn't actually buy it. Uh, but at that time, you could rent them by the month. And we physically put them together uh, and um, look for various ways to get them out into the world. And some of them were sent out to people I knew uh, through the pagan press as complimentary copies. We advertised it in various places. Uh, we took it to um, some events and started to get it out that way. Um, and that became the first, to, to my knowledge, the first written account of specifically Corellian ideas. And, you know, some of the terminology we use today is a little different. Um, some of the ideas may even have evolved a little bit. This happens. One of the things about Corellianism, and this has always been there in my lifetime, is the idea that things do evolve and change, including our understandings. Um, one of... Um, one, one of the stories that I remember from my childhood that had to do with Caroline had to do with the idea of goddess and God. Um, and my, my, this is going to sound probably ridiculous, but my teddy bears as a child uh, were kind of connected to this subject. And in Caroline's different ancestry, in her European ancestry, of course, the goddess was associated with the moon, the god was associated with the sun. But in her native ancestry, it was the opposite. The god was associated with the moon and the goddess was associated with the sun. And the idea that both of these could be true at the same time is a very important part of Corellian thinking. I, I, I mentioned the idea of being able to see the same truth through different lenses and understand that it's just how you're looking at that same thing that changes, not its inner nature. Um, and this, this was one of, and I think is still one of the, one, one of the most important parts of Corellian thought. Um, after the five mystic secrets was the wheel of Hecate. And uh, this was a magazine that I did as the editor starting in 1987. And um, I drew upon as many of my connections in the pagan press as I could 
uh, to get writers and artists to help with this. And um, Paul Barrow wrote for it. Um, I believe we had pieces from Grey Cat. Um, we would eventually have pieces from Silver Ravenwolf. Uh, we had pieces from all kinds of different people. We had, uh, there was an author who was well known at that time by the name of Bill Hines. Um, I believe we had pieces from him. Uh, there were there were a lot of different people who contributed to the Wheel of Hecate. And I did that for about four years. And it was connected to the, 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 um, the Grand Sabbats, started with Imbolc, uh, followed through one cycle of Grand Sabbats, but not anywhere near their actual timing. But it followed through in terms of uh, subject matter. And... It was very interesting. It, it went out over a wide range of territory. I remember thinking at the time it was very interesting that there was no one in Chicago on our mailing list, um, even though we were just south of Chicago. But um, I, um, I had cut my teeth working with all those other magazines, and I, I was either writing or illustrating for upwards of 90 different pagan fanzines at that time or whatever we want to call them. Mm -hmm. And um, like I say, I, I tried to take everything that I learned from working with those different publications and put it into the one that I was doing. And um, so we had a news section, we had rituals, we had uh, poetry, we had artwork. We had a lot of artwork. And um, and as with the, the Five Mystic Secrets, we, we, we sent it out to most of the people that I knew, and we sold it where we could. And we produced it on that copying machine in our house, taped it together, and um, copied it, stapled it, and sent it out in, in little envelopes. And in over time, you would create four editions of this? There were four altogether, and there was to have been a fifth, but, but um, before the fifth one came out, my mother passed away, and um, the magazine it took, a, took a back burner that it never came off of. But that fifth edition does actually still exist in a box mm -hmm. um, with a lot of unpublished writing that um, was very interesting. I bet that I bet it is. I mean, so that's like part of the early history. I would recommend people to save their history, uh, their magazines now, as they become, as the community grows, they become rarer. That's true. And, you know, I was always very big on saving things. One of the things we, we didn't mention is that in the mid 80s, we, we had our first desire to do a correspondence school. And we started the lessons for that. It never came to pass. But those two still exist in a box somewhere. Very different from what we later did, um, but it was interest. It's interesting to um, to look at the development of understanding, um, and when I think back to the 1980s and the people that I knew then. Um, It was a very interesting group of people. And like I say, they represented a very broad 
coalition of ideas. Um, I mentioned Bill Hines. The things he wrote about were very different than probably anything you'll find in print today. Uh, Gray Cat had a very distinct way of looking uh, at her tradition and her community. Uh, I worked heavily with Donna Lyon Rose. And um, some of these people were part of, of the community we know today. Some of them were very, very different. Um, I think, to me, the greatest tragedy that I have seen in these 40-odd years is the narrowing of the community and those greater um, diversities seem to have um, either disappeared or left. There are still a few, but um, when I look back then, they were, they were far more prominent and more common. So you finally, your mother passed. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that transition for the tradition? What, what did that look like for us? Because as you were joining, as both of you, both you and Lady Crystal were joining a larger community. Well, it was a big shock, actually. My mother died far younger than anyone expected her to. And although she had been retired as head of the tradition for 13 years at the time of her crossing, um, she was still playing a very major influence. And Lady Crystal has occasionally said that that it was only after my mother crossed that she really felt the responsibility of being being first priestess. Um, And that up until then, she had always had that, that backup. It, um, I would say in some ways, everything kind of stopped for a moment. Although we, we, have, we have a tradition of a year's mourning when someone who has been at the level of headship of the tradition passes. Um, but I don't think, but, and I think that happened at a very deep level when my mother crossed. We were still doing things, but um, it was a moment of a great deal of uncertainty, I think. There was still a lot of ambition. There was still a lot of uh, plans for the future. But like I say, it was also like like everything just kind of stopped for a moment to to recalibrate. And, you know, sometimes you can feel when a person of power has left a room and you can feel it sometimes when they've left a life. And it took a while to be able to recalibrate without her presence. For me, it left me in the position of having to deal with my father, who could be a very difficult individual, uh, to deal with the estate, which had its own difficulties, and also the fact that I, that I very much wanted to, um, to move on to Chicago. Uh, I had always wanted to live in Chicago. I felt um, that I wanted a broader life than what I had in central Illinois, although I had lived all over central Illinois. Uh, by that point, I'd already been married um, and lived in several communities, including the Chicago suburbs. But I wanted... I wanted 
um, I wanted to expand my life. I, I felt that um, there were so many wonderful experiences that really were not possible outside outside of a metropolis. And I wanted to, to have that lifestyle. So I went on to Chicago, which also was a big disruptive moment. Um, and how was Chicago a disruptive moment? Uh, because well, I guess I guess Crystal and I had already been working in different communities earlier. She was still doing the dancers of Shanti. I'd done the Temple of Avalon, um, and uh, in fact, for a while, Crystal even came to Chicago. Uh, but I, you know, I, I was very much absorbed again in trying to build that broader life, and it took a little while to refocus. Um, and then, of course, I discovered the Chicago community, um, which was very refocused, although in, so, in a somewhat different way than we'd been moving previously. It, it's interesting because when I became involved in the Chicago community, I went from a national stage, which I'd been on with the Pagan Press, to a very local stage where I focused for a long time. And I think, let us go ahead and conclude. So, the, the, so for, for the birth of paganism and within the Corellian tradition and joining that movement came was it from the internal decisions as well as outside of these traditions and that mm-hmm. you guys are fully members of the pagan community now. Um, obviously yes. we can talk about that other, but by the end of the eighties, you were pretty, you went from a family tradition to a fully public tradition. Is, is that yes. what I'm understanding? Mm-hmm. And, and while you, and the, the rules for how to belong to it were radically different under those two steps because prior to, um, Prior to this change, you actually had to be family. Uh, which which kind of went, yeah. went with the civil league and all the others at the time, right? Yeah. Now, we did adopt people from time to time, mm-hmm. but they had, had to have to have the same energy. Mm-hmm. And it was the difference between, I guess we'd say, a narrow lineage and, and a broad church. And part of part of the part of the thing that we haven't addressed, mm-hmm. and it really, really I, I think is a focus my mother must have brought, but it might go back farther. But the idea of survivability was very, very important. The idea that we must survive, that our teachings must survive, um, that we must be remembered, that it was not enough to be a leaf on the wind, that. If the family did not survive, that was a tragedy. A lot of the decisions they made were based on their desire to survive. And part of that comes from the fact that they were a family of of mixed racial origin who had always been heavily focused on survival because it was a major concern. Um, And so the, the idea of moving from a familial to a public tradition was in part based on the idea of survival. How do we go forward? Uh, When we don't have lots of children, how do we go forward? Uh, When our old rules of 
of lineage do not offer us many choices. How do we go forward? Well, we change them. Mm -hmm. We expand. We grow. And certainly in the, uh, the 45 years since 1979, that aspect of we will expand, we will grow, we will survive has been a major component in how I have thought and things I have tried to do. How do we survive in this world? How do we have prosperity and sustainability in this world? Uh, as spirits, of course, we're going to survive. As spirits, we'll carry forward the good things that, that, that we learned, the good things that we did. That's not in question. But we do have that belief that we're in this world to bring a greater expression of spirit here. And how do we build that? How do we sustain it? How do we carry it forward? Uh, most of the decisions that have been made during my lifetime come down to that criteria. Um, and, you know, I remember other people from the hereditary movement. And if you go back to the 80s, there were a lot of people who described themselves as part of the hereditary witchcraft movement, which at that time is a term that we would have been using, even though we'd become a public tradition. But instead of a familial tradition, the term was a hereditary tradition. Uh, but a lot of them took a very different view. I remember one woman, uh, I, w I won't mention her name because I don't think anyone would know it anyway, and I don't know that it would be appropriate to do so, but I remember that she made the statement that she would rather see her hereditary tradition die out than pass it to someone who was, quote, unworthy. Um, and that was the diametric opposite of our point of view. We, we would rather... Um, pass it to 100 people and see 90 of them drop away if 10 of them survived, or even if only one of them survived, uh, rather than see everything just drop away. Um, and that was a view that I think is, even now, large, largely unique to us, um, the, the importance of survival. And I think in order to have that importance, you have to have faced the possibility of not surviving. You know, we haven't talked about other aspects of the history of my family, but we had a number of situations from which we only barely survived, the big one being the, um, the, the federal shootout of, of 1876 when a large portion of the family were, were simply dead. Uh, Caroline Heikerell was, I think, 16 years old at that time, she only lived to be an adult because she was not living with, with the family. She was, um, her father and mother had come to Danville, and so she was not there for that shootout. Uh, but she certainly was aware of it. Um, and there were other things that happened in our history also that really made that aspect of survival something that we were very aware of. Some, and that the fact that it was entirely possible for us not to survive. I think a lot of people in the modern movement have no real appreciation for the fact that, yeah, we might not survive. We might not be anything but a memory in a hundred years. And to me, that would be a tragedy. So, um, yeah. So let, I want to cover one more thing before we finish. Mm -hmm. And that is in 19, was it 1984, you were in D.C. with a lot of other people for the Helms Amendment, which was yes. one of those moments where I think is instrumental 
and how we saw ourselves as a larger community. Can you speak to that? Yes, I can speak to that. Um, I actually was in Washington, D.C. when the Helms Amendment was voted down. Um, and, you know, it was one, well, let's start with what the Helms Amendment was. The Helms mm-hmm. Amendment was put forward by Jesse Helms, a man of whom there is nothing positive I know to say. Although being a human, there's probably something positive somewhere, but I don't know it. And it was to exclude any, any religion that involved witchcraft from being a recognized religion in the United States. It would have made all of our Wiccan religious movements illegitimate legally and denied us any legal protection. And this was part of that new right movement that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, It was later than 84, if I remember correctly, but that's not... um, There were a number of people working against this. It was one of those... One of the first kind of mass movements throughout the community to try to affect something. There was a lot of magic that was done about it. But there was also a lot of things like people lobbying Congress about it. Uh, Selena Fox was very, very prominent in the fight against it. There were lots of other people fighting against it. And had it gone through, yeah, there would be no pagan churches today. They would not be legal in the United States. Um, certainly, certainly no Wiccan churches. And, um, the day that it was voted down, there was a lot of rejoicing. And the thing that I remember most is that, that at the same time that the news came through, it started to rain. And this was taken as, as a divine blessing, a, a sign that things were going to be all right. Because I, rain is often taken as a blessing. So I want to go ahead and correct the date. It was October 14th, 1987. Okay, yes, 87. Um, It was a long time ago. I didn't remember the exact day. There you go. October 14th, 1987, yes. Mm -hmm. I was there and my mother was there also. um, Mm -hmm. There was a lot of rejoicing over that because, again, if that had gone through, it would have been a huge step back because we had, we had achieved a number of victories at that time in terms of recognition. Uh, there was still much to be done, but there had been a lot, a lot of success, and that would have nipped everything in the bud. Um, and I think that modern, modern members of the community don't even know this happened. You know, I find people who don't know the Pentacle Quest happened, uh, mm-hmm. let alone the Helms Amendment. But by having forgotten this happened, they don't realize how easy it would actually be uh, under the right circumstances uh, for, um, well, for, for that very right movement to move against us. All that would really need to happen is for them to have something like the Helms Amendment to remove our legal protections, and we would be totally defenseless. Uh, Now, as it happens, as I remember, the Helms Amendment not only was shut down, it was shut down pretty overwhelmingly. But I don't know if that would be the case today. 
And, you know, we look at, well, we look at the current Speaker of the House and the positions he's taken. We look at a lot of, of politicians, and if we're not concerned, we're idiots. Um, and I know there are a lot of people who have this idea that, um, that we have such spiritual protection that nothing will ever harm us. And I would say to them that that's very naive. Um, yes, spirit may always find a way through, but you know, from the experience of my family, it can be a very, a very difficult way through. And sometimes you may not make it. And, you know, I was once asked when I was in college, uh, one of my instructors who I was very close to uh, asked me if paganism was so great, why did Christianity win out over it? And I think one of the answers is that the, the pagans of the antique period um, perhaps had a false sense of security that because this had been the way things always were, that nothing could truly displace it. And they were wrong. And uh, if they were wrong, we certainly can't take that point of view ourselves. That makes sense, because we're just starting to see paganism, Wicca, and these ethnic and uh, other forms of religion really start to take hold. Mm-hmm. You need to fight for their rights. And there is the rise again of it. So with that, we're, we've covered the Corellian tradition. Got a really good look at the 1970s and the 80s. Uh, right up in time, Don would, uh, Reverend Don would come to Chicago. And mm-hmm. uh, and we see that it was, it was really a very active period uh, in a sense of form of magazines and writings and press. And all done oftentimes by hand. So there was a lot of sweat, blood, yeah. and tears in that involved. And that by the end of the, uh, the 80s, you started seeing the movement emerge enough to have large-scale cooperative behavior. Uh, yes. So, so thank you, Reverend Don. And uh, I understand that. Where can they find you? Uh, you can find me at reverenddonlewis.com. You can find my Patreon. You can find me at Pagan World TV at Magic TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find me on Facebook and then on, on Instagram. And uh, you can always email me at donlewishp at aol.com. One of the oldest AOL addresses out there. And with mm-hmm. that, folks, we will bring our second session, uh, The Birth of Paganism. And we were looking forward to adding many more to this series. Blessed be. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.